0: لَقَرَّ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ إذْ يُبَايِعُونَكَ تَحْتَ الشَّجَرَةِ فَعَلِمَ مَا فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ مَا في قُلُوبِهِمْ فَأَنْزَلَ السَّكِينَةَ عَلَيْهِمْ وَأَثَابَهُمْ فَتْحًا قَرِيبًا وَمَغَانِمَ كَثِيرَةٍ يَأْخُذُونَهَا وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَزِيزًا حَكِيمًا وَعَدَكُمْ اللَّهُ مَغَانِمَ كَثِيرَةً تَأْخُذُونَهَا فَعَجَّلَ لَكُمْ هَٰذِهِ وَكَفَّ أَيْدِيَ النَّاسِ عَنْكُمْ وَلِتَكُونَ آيَةً وَلِتَكُونَ آيَةً لِّلْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَيَهْدِيَكُمْ صِرَاطًا مُّسْتَقِيمًا Certainly was Allah pleased with the believers when they pledged allegiance to you under the tree, and he knew what was in their hearts, so he sent down tranquility upon them and rewarded them with an imminent conquest. And much spoils of war will they take, and ever is Allah exalted in might and wise. Allah has promised for you much spoils of war that you will take and has hastened for you this victory, And withheld the hands of people from you, that it may be a sign for the believers, and that He may guide you to a straight path. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season six of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing 100 years of Middle Eastern history after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. This is Episode 6-8, Arabs and Israelis. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Clashes between Jews and Arabs in Palestine grow more frequent throughout the 1920s and 1930s. World War II and the Holocaust exacerbates these issues as thousands of Jewish refugees flee to Palestine. After the war, Britain decides to end its mandate over Palestine. Zionist leaders announce the establishment of the State of Israel the day before the mandate ends. The very next day, several Arab nations declare war on Israel. And with that, let's take a look at the rest of the Middle East after World War II. If you'd like to support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content, then become a member of Islamic History Exclusive. We have two membership levels one free and one paid. At the free level, you get access to Season 0, Season 1, and all bonus episodes. The paid membership level is only $48 a year and gets you everything in the free level plus additional content such as the story of Ibn Zubair, the life of Salahuddin al-Ayubi, and inshallah, much more to come. For more information, visit IslamicHistoryX.com. The Middle East After World War II Before we discuss the Arab-Israeli War of 1948, let's catch up on what else was happening in the Middle East. Lebanon The last time we discussed Lebanon, France had just approved a new constitution in 1926. This new constitution attempted to divide political power proportionately along religious lines. However, in 1932, when Lebanon elected a Muslim president, the French high commissioner suspended the Lebanese parliament. The following year, France appointed a Christian president. This blatant anti-Muslim bias fueled calls by Muslims to reunite with Syria. The French ignored these demands as religious strife in Lebanon continued to fester. Lebanese Christians formed a militia called the Phalanges Libanesis. Their intention was to ensure Lebanon remained separate from Syria. Lebanese Muslims also formed a militia called Najada. In 1941, after Allied forces liberated Lebanon from Vichy control, France declared Lebanon independent. But France did not actually do anything to make this declaration a reality. In an effort to ease religious tensions, a new government framework was introduced in Lebanon. The National Pact of 1943 was an attempt to balance power among the various religious groups. The National Pact declared the president would be a Maronite Christian, the prime minister would be a Sunni Muslim, and the Speaker of Parliament would be a Shiite Muslim. Furthermore, the Parliament and Cabinet would be divided along a 6 to 5 Christian to Muslim ratio. However, since most of the executive powers were with the office of the President, the National Pact only increased tensions in Lebanon. And the Lebanese never forgot about France's Declaration of Independence. When France continued to retain control of Lebanon, even after the war ended, the country erupted in protest. France brought in thousands of Senegalese troops to quell the unrest, but this only served to inflame tensions. The protests grew larger and angrier and soon turned into riots. By 1946, France had had enough. The French withdrew on March 10th and Lebanon was finally... Truly independent. Syria. When we last discussed Syria, France was trying to extinguish Syrian demands for independence. In 1929, Syria elected a parliament and drafted a constitution that favored independence. The following year, France suspended the Syrian parliament and constitution, then imposed a constitution of its own. But Syria's desire for liberty was not to be ignored. Syrian Arab nationalists formed a new party called the Nationalist Party in 1935, which France promptly outlawed the following year. When the Syrians protested this move, the French backtracked and allowed the Nationalist Party to form a cabinet. In 1936, the Nationalist Party took it a step further and formed an entire government, which France once again suspended three years later. In addition to the Arab Nationalists, the Kurds and Circassians of Syria also demanded more liberty. Syrian Kurds revolted in 1937, but the French eventually restored order. The Circassians were an ethnic group originally from the Caucasus. They lobbied France for an autonomous state, claiming they did not want to be ruled by an Arab majority. They also demanded the Golan Heights region of Syria become their new homeland. But France rejected the Circassian demands just like they had rejected the Kurdish demands. France simply did not want to divide Syria up any further than it already was. Throughout much of the 1940s, France was preoccupied with the war. This allowed Syria to run itself independently. Syrian nationalists restored the constitution of 1930 and held elections. They even declared war on Germany in 1945, though Germany surrendered the following month. Once the war was over, France came back to Syria and tried to reassert itself, leading to protests and clashes between Syrian and French troops. Things changed for Syria when the respected politician, Shakib Arsalan died. In his younger days, Shakib Arsalan had been a member of the Ottoman government and had continued to support the Ottomans throughout the war. After the war ended and the empire was partitioned, Arsalan stood against the Arab nationalists in Syria, promoting a global Islamic identity instead. But with his death in late 1946, the nationalists were now able to promote their agenda. Syria became fully independent of France in August 1946. The following year, the Ba'ath Party, a socialist nationalist party, was founded in Damascus. For the next 23 years, Syria was ravaged with a series of coups, counter-coups, and political upheaval. Jordan Britain had successfully repelled German invasion during World War II and remained in control of its Middle Eastern possessions. But once the war was over, Great Britain was broke and exhausted and ready to give up its empire. When we last discussed Transjordan, Britain was steering the new nation towards independence with Prince Abdullah ibn Hussein at the lead. By the late 1920s, Transjordan had held its first parliamentary elections and had finalized its borders with Syria and Iraq. On March 22, 1946, Amir Abdullah negotiated a new treaty with the British, ending the mandate and gaining full independence. Britain was permitted to retain military bases in Transjordan, but they'd have to pay Prince Abdullah for this privilege. Great Britain also promised to continue supporting and training the Arab Legion, Transjordan's elite military force. Parliament proclaimed Abdullah king of Jordan two months later. With that, the Emirate of Transjordan was renamed the Hashemite Kingdom of Transjordan. Egypt When we last discussed Egypt, Great Britain had given it partial independence. The Egyptians managed their own internal affairs. But the British controlled the canal and managed Egypt's external affairs. Sultan Fuad I became the first ruler of the Kingdom of Egypt, ruling until his death in 1936 when his son Farouk I became king. There was a lot of fighting in Egypt during World War II between the Axis powers and the Allies, but the Egyptian military saw very little action. From the Egyptian perspective, this was a European war and there was no reason for them to get involved. This disinterest angered the British. They sent tanks to surround the Sultan's palace, demanding he dismiss his prime minister, whom they accused of being unsupportive of the war effort. Sultan Farouk eventually buckled under British pressure and fired the Prime Minister, thereby losing the respect of his military and the Egyptian people. This would come back to haunt him in the coming years. The 1948 Arab-Israeli War One of the biggest misconceptions about the first Arab-Israeli war was that Israel faced off against seven different enemies. Yes, it is true that six Arab nations contributed troops to the war along with the local Palestinian militias, but the actual numbers favored the Israelis. 23,500 troops representing six different Arab nations attacked Israel after its declaration of independence on May 14, 1948. But almost half of those troops were supplied by Egypt. Egypt, which had the strongest military and the best air force of all the Arab nations, provided 10,000 troops to the war effort. If the other Arab nations had provided as many troops, the outcome may have been different. But that did not happen. Iraq, which also had a large military, only sent 3,000 soldiers and 20 tanks. Transjordan provided 4,500 troops. Transjordan's elite Arab legion was probably the best trained of all the Arab forces. Lebanon sent 3,000 soldiers, as did Syria. Saudi Arabia also sent a token contingent. Meanwhile, Israel mobilized its entire population of fighting age, giving it an army of over 29,000 troops. Nonetheless, it cannot be overlooked that initially the Israelis were at a disadvantage when it came to weapons and supplies since the Arabs had more tanks artillery, and warplanes. The Egyptian Front Egypt attacked southern Israel from eastern Sinai, hoping to solidify the southern approaches along various critical points. The first place Egypt attacked was the Jewish kibbutz of Kfar Darom, about 10 miles south of Gaza. Egypt opened up with a heavy artillery barrage before sending in tanks and infantry. However, the Egyptians were forced to fall back when the Israelis counterattacked with an anti-tank projectile and Molotov cocktails. The Egyptians also attacked another kibbutz nearby called Niram, but the Israelis were well entrenched in their fortified positions. Forty Israeli settlers were able to hold off nearly a thousand Egyptian soldiers. The Egyptian air force was quickly neutralized. While attacking Israeli airfields near Tel Aviv, the Egyptians accidentally bombed British airfields near Haifa. The British RAF fighters took to the sky and destroyed several Egyptian planes. At the same time, the Israelis had fairly decent air defenses. Between the Israeli defenses and the British Royal Air Force, most of the Egyptian air force was destroyed by the end of May. The Egyptians fared better in north Gaza where they attacked another kibbutz called Yad Mordecai. They forced the Israelis to fall back and capture the settlements, but at a heavy cost. The Egyptians continued to chase the retreating Israelis north along the Palestinian coast. Both sides dug in at Ashdod, a city about 20 miles south of Tel Aviv. On May 29th, Israel attacked the Egyptians at Ashdod using warplanes they'd recently purchased from Czechoslovakia. These aerial attacks did very little damage to the Egyptians, but they did decrease their morale. Then, two Israeli brigades, numbering about 2,000 soldiers, attacked the 2,500 Egyptian troops entrenched at Ashdod. Both sides suffered heavy losses in the fighting and the Israelis only made minor gains. Nonetheless, the Egyptian commander refused to advance any further, ruining any hopes of capturing Tel Aviv. At this point, the Egyptian front along the south was at a stalemate. The Jordanian Front The elite troops of the Jordanian Arab Legion made quick progress into the West Bank towards Jerusalem. The 1st Jordanian Brigade headed north towards Nablus while the 3rd Brigade went towards Jericho before continuing west to Ramallah. A few days later, the 3rd Brigade attacked the Israeli fort at Latrun, about nine miles southeast of Ramallah. Latrun was a strategic point as it commanded a road leading straight into Jerusalem. Even before the war, Latrun had changed hands several times between Israeli and Palestinian militias. But the Arab legion was not a Palestinian militia. They quickly captured Latrun, cutting Jerusalem off from supplies and reinforcements. Elsewhere, however, the Jordanians were having a more difficult time. Jordanians and Israelis engaged in intense fighting both north and south of Jerusalem. The Israelis eventually repelled the Jordanian forces in the north. Meanwhile, On May 21st, combined Egyptian and Arab legion forces attacked Ramat Rachel Kibbutz about two miles south of the Dome of the Rock. The settlement went back and forth between the Arabs and Israelis over the next several days. However, by May 25th, it was finally held by the Israelis. The Jordanians were doing much better within the city of Jerusalem. The Jewish section of the old city surrendered to the Jordanians on May 28th. To protect the Jewish civilians, the Arab Legion escorted them to the safety of the Israeli-held portion of West Jerusalem. The Israelis continued to attack the Jordanians holding the at Latrun in an effort to open the road to Jerusalem. The Israelis attacked on May 25th, May 30th, and June 9th, but were repulsed every time. Frustrated, the Israelis found another way to get supplies and troops to Jerusalem. They simply cut a makeshift road through the Palestinian wilderness bypassing Latrun altogether. The Galilee Front Iraqi, Syrian, and Lebanese forces attacked from different points in the north. The Iraqi troops fought their way through the Jordanian valley before setting up camp in the Samaria region between Nablus and Jenin. From there, the Iraqis attacked the coastal city of Netanya but were beaten back by the Israeli defenders. Nonetheless, the Israeli military commanders saw the potential danger in this situation. If the Iraqis attacked again and were successful, they could cut off northern Palestine, thereby isolating Israeli forces in the north. To prevent this, the Israelis launched a counterattack against the Iraqis called the Battle of Jenin. After three days of brutal fighting, the Iraqis repelled the Israelis, but both sides suffered heavy losses. These losses prevented the Iraqis from pursuing the Israelis and allowed the Israelis to regroup. A Syrian brigade armed with artillery and tanks crossed into Palestine on May 15th, intending to attack several kibbutz near the Sea of Galilee. The Syrians captured a settlement called Zemach on May 18th, but the other Israeli settlements successfully resisted them. Persistent Israeli attacks eventually forced the Syrians to withdraw from Zemach and relocate to the hills in the east. Lebanese forces also entered Palestine from the north on May 15th. The Lebanese captured Malkia, a settlement in the north, lost it, then regained it again on June 6th. A Temporary Truce On June 11th, the United Nations negotiated a four-week truce that both sides repeatedly violated. Israel made good use of this opportunity. The Israeli Defense Force, Israel's official military, absorbed Haganah and all the Zionist militias into their ranks. This improved Israeli communications and centralized their command structure. This also increased the official Israeli military strength to 65,000 troops, far outnumbering the combined Arab forces. But Israel did not stop there. Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion also used this time to purchase heavy weapons and armaments from Czechoslovakia. With all this, the Israeli military after the truce was better organized, better armed, and better equipped than before. The Arabs also used this time to reorganize and resupply, but not at the same level as the Israelis. The Egyptian Front Hoping to strengthen their hold on the Negev desert region, Egypt attacked from the south a few days before the truce expired. The Israelis counter-attacked and eight days of brutal fighting ensued. The Israelis eventually broke through the Egyptian lines connecting their forces in central Palestine with those in southern Palestine. The Galilee Front On July 9th, Israeli forces attacked Syrian forces at Mishmar Hayarden, about six miles north of the Sea of Galilee, but were eventually repulsed. At the same time, the Israelis attacked the Arab Liberation Army led by the Syrian warrior Fauzi al-Kaboukji. By July 18th, the Israelis had captured the lower Galilee region. The Israelis now controlled north-central Palestine from Haifa to the Sea of Galilee. The Jordanian Front From July 9th to July 19th, the Israelis attacked Arab Legion troops around Jerusalem. By the time a second truce was called, the Israelis had captured Lydda, Ramla, and Wassalain. Another Temporary Truce On July 18th, the United Nations brokered another truce that lasted much longer than the first one. By this time, Israel had captured nearly a thousand miles of Palestinian territory. The UN suggested a plan to divide Palestine into two, creating one Jewish state while the rest was added to Egypt and Jordan. Both sides rejected this idea. The next day, Zionist terrorists assassinated the UN diplomat leading the negotiations. On October 15th, fighting resumed. The Egyptian Front By this time, the Israelis knew they had the upper hand and were focused on driving the Arab forces out of Palestine. They began by launching Operation Yoav, which lasted from October 15th to October 22nd. The Israeli goal was to capture the southern Negev desert and move the fighting away from the populated regions in the west. Three Israeli brigades attacked the fortified Egyptian troops in the Negev. The Egyptians were overextended and had difficulties resupplying and sending in reinforcements. This was further exacerbated when the Israeli Air Force destroyed the nearby Egyptian airfield. From that point on, Israel enjoyed air superiority. Within a week, Israel had pushed the Egyptians from Ashdod near Tel Aviv back to Gaza. The Israelis also took the Hebron Hills and Beersheba. By the end of October, the Israelis had split the Egyptian forces into three separate segments. The Galilee Front From October 29th to October 31st, Syrian, Lebanese, and Arab liberation armies fought against Israeli assaults in the north. After three days of fighting, the Syrians and the Arab Liberation Army were pushed out of Galilee. Meanwhile, the Lebanese troops fell back across the border into Lebanon. The Israelis followed the retreating Lebanese, eventually capturing several Arab villages along the border. By the time it was all over, the Israelis held nearly 800 Arab prisoners of war. The Egyptian Front From December 22nd to January 7th, Egypt and Israel fought over southern Palestine. Though the Egyptians in the south were well dug in, they were still overextended. The Egyptian forces successfully repelled Israeli attacks near Gaza. However, in order to do so, the Egyptians had to shift troops away from the Negev, weakening their positions in the south. The Israelis eventually broke through the weakened Egyptian lines in the Negev desert, then headed west towards the Sinai coast. The Israeli plan was to encircle the Egyptians at Gaza. Israeli troops also attempted to invade Sinai. However, diplomatic pressure from Great Britain forced them to withdraw. With the remaining troops trapped in Gaza, Egypt decided to negotiate with Israel. On January 7th, 1949, they signed a peace treaty whereby Egypt kept the Gaza Strip while Israel kept the Negev Desert. Peace talks. With Egypt having reached a settlement, the other Arab nations were ready to do the same. Lebanon began negotiating on March 3rd, 1949 with Israel ultimately agreeing to withdraw from Lebanese territory. Transjordan also entered negotiations, finally coming to an agreement on April 3, 1949. Transjordan kept the West Bank and East Jerusalem. The Jordanian-controlled territory was separated from Israeli territory by a border called the Green Line. Syria never actually agreed to peace, merely signing an armistice to end hostilities. How the Arabs Lost Even though the Arab forces communicated and worked together at times, they did not operate under a single command structure. Instead of a single, unified goal, six different nations had six different, often conflicting, agendas. The Arab nations also underestimated their Israeli opponents. They were not prepared to face the level of resistance they faced from the Israelis. Finally, the stakes were not that high for the Arabs. With the exception of the Palestinians, the Arab forces were not fighting for their lives. This was not a religious struggle, nor was it a fight for survival. Except for their honor, there really was not much at stake for Syria, Transjordan, Adarq, Egypt Lebanon and Saudi Arabia Israel on the other hand fought under a single chain of command with a single goal and the Israelis fully appreciated the strength of their opponent hence they fought with everything they had the Israelis were also fighting for survival if they lost the war they would lose their nation and perhaps even their lives Palestine After the War With the war over, Israel now controlled 80% of Palestine from the British mandate. The only exceptions were the Gaza Strip under the Egyptians and the West Bank under the Jordanians. Arab and Israeli forces would continue to attack each other across their respective borders for several years to come. The Palestinian refugee situation became an international crisis. Even before the 1948 war, thousands of Palestinians had fled into neighboring countries to escape the fighting between Arab and Zionist militias. After the war, hundreds of thousands more Palestinians fled to either Gaza, the West Bank, or one of the neighboring Arab states. Israel placed those Palestinians who remained in Israeli territory under military rule. This meant the Palestinians were treated like what they were, an occupied people. They were ruled by a military governor. Israeli soldiers, not police officers, enforced law and order. And Palestinian movement and freedom was severely limited and restricted. Those Palestinians who fled to neighboring countries often wound up in one of dozens of refugee camps across the Middle East, some of them quite large, and many of them still in existence to this day. In 1950, the United Nations reported there were over 950,000 Palestinians living in its refugee camps. By 1987, this number had increased to 2.2 million. This does not take into account the thousands of Palestinians living in unofficial refugee camps and settlements across the Middle East. On December eleventh, 1948, the United Nations adopted Resolution 194. This resolution called for a conciliation committee between all sides, demilitarization of Palestine's holy places, and UN control of Jerusalem but most importantly, it highlighted the right of return for all refugees. Resolves that the refugees wishing to return to their homes and live at peace with their neighbors should be permitted to do so at the earliest practicable date, and that compensation should be paid for the property of those choosing not to return and for loss of or damage to property which, under principles of international law or equity, should be made good by the governments or authorities responsible. UN Resolution 194 was never implemented. On June 25, 1949, Israel held its first election. David Ben-Gurion, who had only been acting prime minister, was elected Israel's first prime minister. He would remain in office for the next 14 years. The following year, Israel passed the Law of Return, giving every Jewish person in the world the right to settle in Israel. While the Arab population in Palestine was decimated, the Jewish population flourished. When Israel first declared independence in 1948, it had an estimated population of about 650,000. Two years later, it was over a million. Newly arrived Jewish immigrants moved into the abandoned homes of the Palestinians. From 1949 to 1951, 700,000 Jewish immigrants moved to Israel. Over the next 40 years, another million arrived. Nearly half of these immigrants came from Europe. A third of them came from Asia and a sixth from Africa. Less than 2,000 came from the United States. In 1950, 60,000 Jews immigrated from Yemen alone. In the next episode, we'll continue to discuss the Arab-Israeli conflict as it progresses through the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a member of Islamic History Exclusive. Visit islamichistoryx.com for more information. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. You can also make a one-time donation by visiting islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate or send a tip via Cash App using the cash tag Islamic History. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. as Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. In this series, we are going over the life of Salahuddin al-Ayubi, known to the West as Saladin. In today's episode, we'll discuss the various clashes between Salahuddin and Richard I., But before we get into that, let's begin with a recap of where we are so far. King Richard I of England and King Philip II Augustus of France join the Third Crusade in July 1190. Philip and Richard arrive in Palestine in 1191 where the Crusaders are besieging Acre. The two kings take charge of the siege and Acre falls in July 1191. Richard kills the Muslim garrison of Acre when negotiations with Salahuddin fall through. King Philip returns to Europe, but King Richard decides to remain in Outremer. And with that, let's discuss the military struggle between Salahuddin and Richard. The Crusaders Head South With Acre back in Christian hands, Richard Cordelion was ready to continue the fight for Palestine. The best way to ensure his success was to capture more ports along the coast. King Richard led the crusaders out of Acre and headed south for Jaffa, the next closest major Palestinian port. But there were a few things to consider on this journey. An army is most vulnerable while on the move. Richard knew this and knew Salahuddin would be looking for an opportunity to attack. The crusaders had to make it to Jaffa without risking an open battle with Salahuddin. As the crusaders traveled south, they stayed very close to the shoreline. In fact, they were practically walking in the surf. The crusader navy followed the army down the coast providing additional support. Richard maintained a slow pace so neither the army nor the navy strayed too far from the other. This meant that only the land-facing side of the army was open to attack. Richard ordered his men to keep a close formation to guard against Muslim attacks. With over 10,000 men marching, the Crusader army train was probably close to two miles long. Salahuddin ordered his brother, Al-Adil, to follow the crusaders with his own army, keeping an eye out for any opportunities.